Do you, Tim Ryan? Me, yeah. Remember, do you remember the Alamo? No. Do you remember the first YouTube video that you ever watched? No. And what was it? Okay, you don't. Yeah, remember. no, you I remember, don't. That, that's a great question. Remember when you, do you remember? Well, I'm the man of icebreaker questions, obviously. There you go. Do you, do you remember when you started looking at YouTube? Gosh, I mean, it's been a long, long time, which is probably why I don't remember. But gosh, that is a, I would love to know. I, if, I would love to see if there, you can go back into your viewing archives to find out what was the first video that you watched. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. I think it's an amazing question. And we were just talking about, you know, amazing videos on the internet. We uh, came up with this Bill O'Reilly. Um, do remember. it live. Yeah, we'll do it live. That's what he says. <laughs> and then some other, you know, like um, ridiculous things. It's, it's hilarious. But it reminded me to, you know, ask you guys what it, your first YouTube video of all time is. Mine, I remember I was in college at West Virginia University sitting on my sofa. And I uh, had my laptop on like the uh, the side armrest thing. And this guy posts this thing, he puts it on Facebook and then he links to it on, on uh, the YouTube. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't know what YouTube is, but I'm gonna click it. And it is this thing called Grape Lady Falls. Have you guys ever seen Grape Lady Falls? Oh, where Falls? she's jumping, ah, she's, like awful winds yeah. herself. I've seen Tim, that. Tim, you've never seen it? I think that you've shared with uh, shared it with me okay. before. It's like an E-bombs fail. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good old E-bombs world. Yeah, so she's like, a reporter is at the, you know, the wine country fair or something like that. Mm, and she's yeah, trying yeah, yeah, to see yeah. who can make wine fast or not. And then she's like, tries to cheat a little bit. And then karma hits her and she falls out of the thing, out of the, the bin, whatever. And the reporter stays on her. And she's like dying of like, can't talk. Love it. I'm going to watch that again yeah. today. That's my first uh, YouTube video of all time. I think it's a great first icebreaker. One to like, hey, recall back, you know, what was it? But Shed, what do you know what yours was? First YouTube well, video you ever watched? Disclaimer, it's not nice Ooh. to laugh at other people's misfortune and pain, but sometimes it's, it's still true. funny. Um, uh, I, I don't <laughs> specifically recall my first ever, but I did mention Winnebago Man to you. Uh, mm -hmm. I used to watch a lot of, uh, music videos and like live performances from bands that I love on YouTube. So that, that could have been one of my first, one of my favorite, uh, Zach, uh, uh, icebreaker questions is what was your first email address? Uh, it's a fun one to do. I was Stevie curls at hotmail.com. You're welcome. Wow. You're welcome. No longer active. <laughs> Um, I know what mine was because I still have it. It's a Gmail account, ZachMiller84.com. But what was interesting is I didn't get it until I was basically graduating college. And I was like, oh, I, I guess I need to have an email. I don't know why, but that was it. Because even in college, we didn't have emails. They did everything through this like portal. Yeah. I feel like that's the truth. I, I could be lying to myself, <laughs> but I yeah. feel like that's it. And I got the backstory of, of my handle there, Ryan TNT, that, that, that stems from my first email address. I was in Germany. Uh, and, and so like our username was like Ryan T, 
not a lot of Ryans in Germany. And uh, so then when we came back here, there, uh, Ryan T was not uh, something that was available. So we threw the TNT because my wife's name is Terry. So Ryan TNT is just always stuck. Um, well, that's that dynamite. That's dynamite. That, and that's what everyone always thinks. That they, they think that we're super rad and dynamite and all that kind of good stuff, but not the case. Super unoriginal. Would you say yours was like curly boy, cur curly hair boy, six forty nine? Stevie curls at hotmail.com. I got curls under here, but uh, I love it. Yeah, curls that are Stevie fading, curls. but curls. I used to have a widow's peak. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> that sounds exciting. It's when your hair forms yeah. the Dracula V. Anyway, I can't you didn't know next that, question. Dad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you on the show, Chad. Appreciate it's it. Good to, it's good to be here. We, we, we're heading, to, we, we we're going north of the border again. Uh, second time to, uh, going north of the border. So, Tom, if you're if you're listening, I'm sure you are. Tom's one of our board members uh, who hails from north of the border. Lovely. So, nice to have it. But uh, we're going to talk about Speak Up Culture. What is Speak Up Culture? Speak Up Culture. So uh, as, as my book, I wrote it, came out last fall in October. Um, Speak Up Culture, when leaders truly listen, people step up. Speak Up Culture is an environment, an environment in which leaders make it safe, psychologically safe and worth it for people to speak up and share their truth, whether it's their ideas, feedback, concerns, disagreements or mistakes. And I'm fascinated with um, uh, cultures, whether that's uh, 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 organizational culture or a family culture or society, um, but these cultures in which leaders behave in a way that encourages and rewards people, encourages and rewards people for speaking up, or those environments that actually ignore or punish people for speaking up. Uh, and if you ignore or punish, you all of a sudden stop hearing people's voices. Not that they have nothing to say, they just uh, feel fear or apathy toward actually speaking up. Zach, you Is something happened through experience? Yeah, I'm afraid uh, all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so sorry. Well, let's talk more about Zach's fear. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm 39 years old now. I feel like I'm afraid of heights now. And I used to love roller coasters. I think I could still ride a roller coaster. I know that has nothing to do with this, but like that's the first fear that I thought of when I came into here. Um, I feel like personally, I don't, I don't know that I go through this, but I do think like a lot of people are maybe worried about hurting someone's feelings by saying something in this and and like even like when i'm like coaching clients i'll say something like hey like i'm about to say something that's bold are mm. you ready for it yep because if they're not in the right i don't i don't zone yeah that, no, i think point, that's that's super important yeah yeah i i call so so one zach you asked if this is some personal experience which i will share and then just to comment on that that's brilliant i i call that it's it's like an inoculation. It's like, hey, I want to go to a place. Uh, I want to share some real feedback. It's not going to be easy to share. It may not be easy to hear, but I'm doing it from a spirit of love, care, support, trying to build you up. You know, right. um, I I coach a brilliant leader who who shares with with her people that if she stops giving you feedback, you should be concerned. That for her, feedback is a is an investment. Um, but I but I love that. I mean. Uh, speak up isn't an instruction, speak up's a culture. Um, and just because you have something to say doesn't mean that it's the right time to say it. So check in, hey, I want to have a feedback conversation. And like, when when can you be, be present and, and ready to have that conversation, which is great. Um, 
the book is semi-autobiographical, very much based, yes, on research um, uh, and case studies, but also on my own experience. So first and foremost, I grew up with a stutter. So I know what it feels like to be voiceless, to have something to say, but to fear speaking up for fear of uh, embarrassment um, uh, and uh, to not speak up at all uh, or to try to speak up and it doesn't come out. So I know intimately that feeling of voicelessness. I married a speech pathologist. Good choice. Mm. Uh, not just for me, but for my children and nieces and nephews. Um and then in my my career, 15 plus year career, I've seen and experienced a myriad of, of teams, teams where there is a speak up culture and it's marvelous and it's good, not just for business, but for the health and well-being of the folks on that team. I have best friends to this day that I worked with on a speak up culture, um, you know, in a team that, that had a speak up culture. And I've even seen um, teams have a speak up culture and then lose it because of a change in, in leaders. And not only is it bad for business and idea generation, innovation, ability to trust and execute, it's also bad for our, our health and well-being, um, mm. you know, showing up to work and having to lie, hide and fake just to get through the day and not and not get punished. Yeah, that's gosh, there's, that's that's a lot to unpack there, especially when it comes to a lot of our audience being early stage founders. It takes a lot of courage to come up with a business idea. And present that and, and show that off to the world that that is their baby. And, and a lot of people are reserved because they don't want to be wrong or they don't, they don't want to be told that their baby is ugly. So what, what are some first steps to, to get over that kind of that fear? Well, I think it's two things. I mean, one, it's um, uh, you the the criticism can be hard. The other is who do you trust? Like who who should you share with? Should you share all things with with all people or not? Like having some level of discernment of who are people worthwhile to share with versus who are people that might take advantage or or or, or abuse. Um, you know, I harp against the term Tim uh, fearless leader. I'm not a fan of it uh, mm -hmm. because uh, all leaders should feel fear. If you truly come across a fearless leader, they are dangerous and destructive, and you should run away. Um, uh, I don't think we should label our leaders as fearless. I think we should uh, uh, encourage that our leaders feel the fear, use it as data to, to mitigate risk or to evaluate what risk is, and then choose to proceed or choose not to. Um, uh, and so I say that because, you know, if you have an idea or if you're starting something new or you're trying to do some big, important work, um, there's going to be fear. There's going to be fear of judgment. There's going to be fear of failure. There's going to be fear of getting criticism. But when you connect yourself to something that's more important than that fear, often purpose, often progress, how can you use uh, what matters so much about what you're doing as something that will give you courage to receive feedback, to be open to criticism, to detach from being right, and care most about making progress. Interesting. Is human nature, is it just human nature to have fear? Yes. If it weren't for fear, we wouldn't have courage. Um, and mm. there's a there's a, a, an immediate dopamine release when fear is present, which gives us a little bit of courage to, to, to walk out of the cave and pursue it. Um, so yeah, fear is biological. Fear is natural. Um, we all should feel fear. If we don't feel fear, there's something wrong with us. Okay. So I heard this aspect of this thing that I started doing recently. I started doing ice plunges where like I get to like this ice bath and it's cold as hell and it sucks and whatever cold as hell. That's funny. 
this does not really work together, I guess. Oxymoron, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I read about this or was exploring about it is the effect of you not wanting to do the thing, even though you're getting better at it, and I am getting, you know, quote unquote, better at it. That thing actually helps you build up courage for other things oh, because sure. it shows you that you can start being uh, the, the courage that you get for going in there can help you in another realm of, of, of whatever else you want to be doing to help. And so it's interesting how, while I still haven't done it today and I only have to get in for three minutes, I'm terrified and I don't want to do it because I'm like, <laughs> you got cold overnight and like, I'm like there, but that thing helps you. And, it, and so whenever I hear, Oh, here's this problem. How can mm -hmm. I fix it? Or what can I be doing to maybe get stronger at that? Sometimes it has nothing to do with that actual thing, right? So maybe trying to get better at sales could actually have nothing to do with, maybe you're actually pretty good at sales. You just don't do it enough. And by fixing something else in your world or, or improving this by jumping in a damn ice plunge, yep. that actually will make you stronger in that one aspect to do more. And it's interesting how, 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 how that happens. And I always am trying to find okay, you have a problem here. What's the real solution to that? Does it have to be the actual thing? Could it be something else? Stuff like that. Just thoughts on that? Oh, well, I mean, one, there are legit benefits to cold plunging from a physiological, anti-inflammatory physiological point of view. So good on you. And well, thank you for yes, that too. Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, courage is contagious. Courage bleeds both amongst people as well as for us. So mm. I'm sure Zach, there's been this experience as well. I've done a cold plunge. I can go on that roller coaster or I've done a cold plunge. I can make that sales call. So there is a, I think courage can cross over into other realms because if you can do this, you can train yourself. I can step in and do uncomfortable things that, that help me grow and help me be healthier um, as well courage travels in company. It's a lot easier to be courageous in community than it is to be courageous as one individual person. And so one of the things that I encourage folks to do is if you need, if, if you need to have courage, phone a friend, you know, hmm. phone someone you're like, I'm afraid to do something, but I think I know what the right thing to do is. Can you talk me off the ledge? You know, can, can you tell me that I'm going to be okay? Can you tell me I can sleep on your couch if this doesn't go well? You know, um, uh, I think courage crosses over and bleeds and courage is contagious amongst folks. It's it's interesting you say that. I think one of the coolest cultures out there is the the improv slash comedy culture, the aspiring yeah. comedians. Uh, I was at an event, didn't realize that I was, it was at a local brewery. We went there to have a couple beers, but it was an open mic night and, and like everybody poured in to support one another. And it, it was really, really cool to see that culture. And if the jokes didn't land, they were still there to support them. So uh, hearing you share this, it, it makes me even appreciate that culture even more. Totally. Totally. Yeah, that I, is, I love that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's gotta be, there's, to me personally, there's probably nothing more terrifying than uh, you're up on a on a stage and a, a joke does not go. Well, the there's the Jerry. Planet to go. There, there's the Jerry Seinfeld joke of the number one fear in North America, which is true apparently. I don't know if this is still the stat, but um, is public speaking, and the number two fear is death. So you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, which makes no sense whatsoever. So I wrote, I wrote a joke recently. Oh, you did. I wrote a joke recently. I've told it to two people, three people. Mm. 
they all think it sucks. <laughs> well, we can make it better, so, maybe. All right, I'll just give you a quick little premise of the story. <laughs> Basically, like I was going through like LinkedIn at one point or something, I just see all these people's headshots are kind of obnoxious. And by obnoxious, I mean like they're they're like showing off things that we learned as kids, like holding out the jacket like this, or or that they button the they button their button like this. And it just seems like it's like so silly that that's what the picture is in that. And I was like, why are we embracing as adults that I can button my button or zip up my pants and something like that? That seems ridiculous. And so it's some form of that. But uh, it's not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> I'm not sure what the punchline is. Yeah, I, don't, I guess. Are, I guess. Are I you? It was... Are you saying like there's there's pictures where people are like holding their coat or like the picture of doing up your button, and it's like, why are we lauding that why? as remarkable? It you know, is. Isn't there a higher standard? Those headshots are kind of ridiculous. Yeah, you see these things. It's kind of obnoxious. I don't like know. holding I, I like, like a uh, holding like a wrestling championship belt or something. Okay, that is fine. <laughs> Jeez. I will say belt? though, out, out, out loud. I will say though, out loud that um, uh, I'm not pleased with the LinkedIn algorithm at present. Anyone, anyone, and I find that LinkedIn rewards now. Uh, uh, selfies of oneself, even if it mm. has nothing to do with the content that you're posting about. I'll see folks write stuff and then it's just a selfie of them. And I'm like, really? Like, really? Is that what we're doing? I'm I'm just glad that you are displeased with LinkedIn and not necessarily my joke that I've already bombed. <laughs> and I mean, this is, we've moved on, Zach. This is now yeah, five people. I think I think you yeah. I I think you're on to something, but it's in the it's in the setup, you know. It's 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 all around, you know, you know how we go and get photos done, whether it's for a for a wedding or a major event or you know, a professional headshot at work. And uh and for some reason, you know, they always have men holding up their blazer if it's as if it's to show off that I can still put on my coat. Or they show the button, the but button on, on the cufflinks. Like, look at me. I yes. can button my cufflinks. I think I think it's in the buildup and the delivery. I, I think you might be onto something. Yeah. <laughs> There's the championship yeah, no, yeah. belt. I mean <laughs> what did you, what did you earn that for? It was bought for uh, oh, it's, you're 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 crackling, Zach. Um, but no, that is that is ridiculous, though. In terms of from the headshot standpoint, you're like one being told to be in that position, but two, then then you selecting that as your headshot, and you're like, that's the one. That that's that that's one. exactly what I was going for. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting. I'm I'm curious your take on. Uh, there is like from an entrepreneurial standpoint, from a uh, when looking at founders from an investment, it's mm -hmm. like you, you, there's that fine line of of crazy. You, they got to be crazy enough to think they can change the world, but not too crazy that you can't invest in their their company. From your point of view, is it a level of crazy craziness, or is it more of speak up culture, or is it more they have the the bravery to? to see their vision through what, what, what's your take i i think you're speaking more to rebel or disruptor or mm. visionary um 
you know, you look at an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs um, or a Sarah Blakely, like you look at these folks that look at convention um, and and they sort of have a debunking cunning attitude toward it. And so um, I think it's more around vision than necessarily, you know, quote unquote crazy. But yeah, I, 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 I it, there, there have been studies done. I know um, uh, Cameron Harold, who's a, who's a, um, an entrepreneur and focuses on the, on the operator COO type of a, of a startup, but he's done some analysis and references some analysis on um, mental health disorders amongst founders, that there is a higher propensity of ADD, ADHD, even bipolar and schizophrenia amongst founders, um, which I don't think is necessarily a coincidence. I think there's a different wiring, a, a different hmm. neurology oftentimes, which makes sense because people who have vision think differently. Now, I think the most important piece is to know, it is to have founders who can have enough humility to know when it's fine for them to be the founder but not fine for them to be the president or the CEO and when you should stick in your lane. Um, you know, like I'm a fan overall of Elon Musk, but I think he's got way too much power for any one individual and way too much influence for any one individual, let alone um, an individual who is likely uh, not necessarily neurotypical and, and will sit on the toilet and tweet something that can change the state of foreign affairs. Right. Right. So it is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's around lanes. Do we know that he's on the toilet though? Yeah. Or is that he, an assumption? Oh yeah, he, yeah. No, no. He's, 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 there is a recent, uh, New York times interview that he did where he, he's like, you know, when do you tweet? <laughs> uh he tweets when he's on the grammar um so so yeah i i think it's really around as human beings as individuals were junks were junk but together were remarkable it's around teaming so oftentimes founders are great with vision and ideas but not necessarily always at execution so this is the case for having a team a yeah. team is it brings diversity and helps get stuff done Oh, that's interesting. Are you a fan of sports at all? Yes. Okay. So in the last 24 hours, two of the greatest football coaches of all time have, well, probably retired. Well, I don't know about Bill Belichick yet, but he's leaving the Patriots. Mm. And Nick Saban has retired from the Alabama Crimson Tide. Both have um, are, are known as, as, as maybe the tops in, in, in their sports and, and potentially of all time. They have great teams. They're be able to they're they're able to create these great cultures. Yeah. Is do, do you look at sports and how some teams, because a lot of people say like the players are pretty much the same on a lot of these teams, but the way that the coaching can help move them to become better is why they get there. Like you could look at the Patriots and say, Hey, like they did not have the best teams, but they were able to figure it out for so many years to, to get through there. Yeah. H how do you look at sports and say, okay, this is something that I can use and, and what I'm doing. How could other people look at sports? Because it's yeah. the most visually you know, watch thing in the world on a weekly basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how, how, how does that impact what, what you do or how do you, how do you work through that? Yes. I have lots of thoughts there. So uh, let's see if I can be coherent in, I, I'm not as familiar with Nick Saban and how he coaches. I'm more familiar with Bill Belichick um, and how 
uh, Bill often shows up to practice and tells nobody what they're going to do. Because if you simulate practice, if it's, it's a real game, you're going to perform better in the game. Most coaches tell everyone, here's what we're going to do. Here are the drills. But oftentimes, Bill Belichick won't even tell his other coaches, won't even know himself. He actually likes to simulate gameplay in practice because then you're seeing more scenarios that might actually happen when the real game is going. Um, I never knew that before. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, you know, because you can train, but unless you're actually getting reps on what it could be like, the training might be less valuable. Um, you're actually developing folks' attributes, not just their not just their skills. Um, so, uh, short answer: yes. So, sports are interesting because oftentimes we only look at a finite game, but we have to realize that there's it's still an infinite game. So, one game there's a beginning, middle, and end. One season there's a beginning, middle, and end. But baseball or football, these are infinite games. Um, you don't win one season and then all teams go like, all right, we're done. Let's not show up next year. No, you keep showing up next year. And it's a constant tension and balance, much like in business from quarter to quarter or, or fiscal year to fiscal year. Do you do what's right in the expedient at the cost of the long term? Or can you both do what's right in the short term and the long term, vice versa? Um, but in infinite games, and this is work from James Kars um, and Simon Sinek, who I've worked with for, for uh, many years, the two currencies of an infinite game are not just um, resources, time, money, people, but it's also will, the will of the people. And you, you even in, in, in hot war, you look at Ukraine, you look at Vietnam, um, these were under-resourced armies who... Um, you know, the as it relates to the U.S. And, and Vietnam, the U.S. won every single hot war and finite game, but yet they lost the war. How, how does that happen? Well, it happens when the U.S. is fighting for their interests and the Viet Cong is fighting for the right to exist. So you can have under-resourced folks who have more will, more motivation, more trust, and more ability to gel as a team and will outperform their better-resourced counterparts. Hmm. Um, look no further than the 1992 men's U.S. basketball team. That, on paper, was the best team ever, but they totally flopped. Why? Because at any given moment, you had five guys on the court that they were the guy on their team that they would take the shot when there's 1.8 seconds left on the clock. How do you gel as a team when you have no role players, right? It's it, it's the Shane Battier effect. Shane Battier always had awful individual uh, stats as a professional basketball player. But if you study the analytics of when he was on the court, the other four offensive players on his team had excellent numbers and the other five players on the other teams had worse numbers. He was a great defender, a great rebounder, a great assist maker, but also he would set screens. Like he elevated his team and made the other team harder to play. So uh, yes, those are a few thoughts there. Well, That's super fascinating. Yeah. Adam how, how Grant we... has a has a great podcast called the Shane Battier effect. Interesting. Yeah. How do we translate that into so a startup just gets some funding and they have to start building out their team? What 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 do you how do you build out a team that has the culture to yeah. to set yourself up for success? Well, 
relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. And so, and the more relationship we can build with our purpose, with the market, with ourselves, self-awareness, with the folks around us, with the outside world, um, the better we can be. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, high performing, high trusting teams, whether they're startup or, or not, um, they have trust, they have, they have relationship. Um, uh, there's a business case for vulnerability, uh, vulnerability isn't sharing all things with all people all the time. That's called oversharing <laughs> vulnerabilities about context. So, you know, I just had a, had a meeting with my team this morning and I spoke about some of my issues around control and some of my issues around, you know, wanting to be CC'd on email. So I'm in the know versus me letting go a little bit more. Right. Mm. But I was vulnerable wearing strengths and weaknesses and limitations on my sleeves so that my team better knows how to grow with me, deal with me um, and, and vice versa. So um, when we wear our strengths and weaknesses on our sleeves, we know who should step up and who should step back. If we're having a contentious conversation with a, with a client, maybe it isn't the hot-headed person who should be leading that conversation, and it's someone who has a bit more patience and calmness who should lead that conversation. That's the business case for teaming and for vulnerability. Uh, yeah, I, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. The whole vulnerability aspect, especially when it comes to hiring, Work talking with people to, to hire people to offset having the courage to offset and hire someone to offset your weaknesses. Uh, yes. so few people want to hire people just like them. Oftentimes, we do, though. Yes, I think oftentimes we have unsophisticated hiring practices where we hire someone we, we like, um, who often might look the same as us. And then you're not getting diversity. So I think the greatest thing to do is to figure out what's missing on this team. Um, and you can use uh, tons. There's tons of assessments out there, whether it's StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs or DISC. I just spoke with my team this morning about Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies, which is obliger, questioner, upholder, or rebel. I'm rebel. You can't make me do it. And neither can I, which my team should know, because if you assign work to me, it, it might not happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, and then sometimes I will be ridiculously productive on things you never thought I would do um, or never thought of before. So, yeah, I'm not sure what the original question was, but those are a few thoughts. Feel free to ask the question again or ask a new question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's uh, hiring to offset your weaknesses to, yes. to make a stronger team. Duh. Which is hard because it means that you need to have the humility right. and vulnerability and courage to say, I'm not good at this or this is going to be a challenge for me. Um, but yeah, uh, that's so much of it is hire people who complement, who share values, but have different strengths and points of views and experience and make you better, make the right. team better. I mean, I'd like to me, administra administrative work is not my thing. And, and, and having the humility or, or just come to the realization that there are people out there that love that stuff. Yeah. And the sooner that you can go out and hire someone that loves to do administrative work, then your life has just become infinitely better. Yep. Yep. So long as you share values, so long as you can, can jive, you know, so long as it isn't just someone who checks all the boxes without correctly right. thinking or without checking in. But yeah, um, there's, this is the beauty of being human 
is uh, is is the diversity in our strengths and our experiences. But it's funny because um, I've I, I've had a few moments in 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 my life. So like one one in particular, I th I think we take our strengths for granted, and I think that you know our only truth is our own perception, and so uh, often taught. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my top strengths is communication. I love using language and words to communicate ideas and feelings in ways that resonate with people. And so I'm constantly thinking of a, a tweet or a social media post or a way to write that message. Or, a, or yesterday I was thinking of the right adjective to use and it came to me in the car this morning after I dropped my kids off at school and I texted myself that word so I'd remember it and use it. <laughs> Apparently, like unbeknownst to me, but apparently not everyone thinks of lines for social media or an email in the car or the shower like I do. And this baffles me. But the reason is, is because like, that's my filter and perspective. So um, we all have these superhuman magic tricks that we often take for granted because we think everyone must think like us, but everyone does not think like us. Real quick, how is, I'm, I'm before. I'm sorry, Zach. Before I forget, how what's the best method to find out what your strengths are? Uh, there's tons of assessments. Um, so I I think uh, self reflection is always good, but incomplete. There's assessments like Strengths Finder or Jonathan Fields came out with one called Spark Type or Four Tendencies. Or like there's tons of these psychometric mm. things which are brilliant, and then feedback from those who work closely with you. Uh, or feedback from those who have some perception and some ability to see individual strengths. So I, th I think those three, self-assessment, reflection, and debrief. And the frequency to do something like that? Uh, I, I don't know if there's any one frequency. I think if you haven't done any of that yet, start. <laughs> uh -huh. Try a few. Don't just do one. Um, uh, you know, start, try. It, do it in a community of folks, do it with, with others and experience it together, whether it's a team or a community that, that you're part of. Um, you know, I, I, I'm now, you know, I'm now in my late thirties. I've done a bunch of this stuff over the last 15, 20 years, but every now and then there's still a new one that'll come across or my team is doing it. So I'll just do it again, or my team's doing it and I feel pretty good about it. And I'll share mine, but we'll see how we gel and complement and differ. So I don't think it's a set and forget it of like, oh, well, I've already filled out my coupon card. I don't need to. This is the beautiful thing about self-awareness is we can learn things about ourselves on our deathbed. How's that for a pretty both morbid and inspiring idea right. of this thing called personal professional development is never done. Like, you know, it's not like we're born with a bucket on it that says potential and then we reach it and we're like, well, <laughs> good luck the rest of the way. Like potential is infinite. It's not a bucket. Um, you know, if you've ever done something and said, wow, I didn't know I had it in me. Didn't know I could do that. Um, that's just you realizing or experiencing parts of yourself that you didn't know, like cold plunging. Well, and it's cool. interesting too, how thoughts change when major things happen in your life get married, have a child, have a second child, get a dog, whatever the case is. And, and it, it can have a really impactful and totally change a Myers-Briggs outcome after something like that happens. Yeah. It, it, or intensify or amplify. 
Sure. Um, yeah, but totally, totally. I mean, so this is the my my dear friend who lives in your neck of the woods, Rich Davini. He wrote this book, The Attributes. It's brilliant. So Rich is a retired SEAL, and he did uh, training and selection for a specific elite SEAL team. And he was trying to figure out um, why is it so... I'll give a bit of background. So 90% of folks who try out to be a SEAL don't make it. So there's a 90% attrition rate. Then you have specialized SEAL teams where already um, you're already a SEAL and then you try out for a specialized team. And for his specific team, the attrition rate was 50%. That's some Yogi Berra math for you right there. Um <laughs> So it's 50% of the 10% who make it still get cut for his elite team. And he was he was trying to figure out, why am I cutting them? Like, they have all the necessary skills. There's something else, the intangibles, which he called attributes. So skills are easier to test, measure, and assess. Shoot a gun, swim in a pool, um, uh, you know, walk, talk, riding a bike. You know, these are skills. Listening is actually a skill. Um, but when you fall off your, your your bike and scrape your knee, now what do you do? Your attributes are showing. Do you hop back on with a bloody knee or can you not be in the same room as a bike for another three years? By the way, none of it is right or wrong. It just is. It's our makeup, right? Um, uh, so while listening, for example, is a skill, compassion or empathy, attribute. And so Rich became fascinated with what are the attributes, the human attributes that you either kind of naturally have or don't. Doesn't mean you can't develop them. It just takes awareness and motivation and purposely putting yourself in situations where you can work on them. Um, so, the, so the greatest way for your attributes to show is when you're exposed to stress, uncertainty, and challenge. That's why I'm a really big fan of when we're interviewing folks what are the attributes we need for them to succeed on this team and in this role? I'm talking empathy, cunning, perseverance, courage, um, uh, humility, patience. Like, what are those attributes? And, you know, hopefully you don't have too much of a laundry list because then you're looking for a unicorn. But what are those must-have attributes? And then how can you test for them? Um, so, uh, and, and you test for them by throwing a curveball. So I'll share one little quick st story of this. So... My, and I wrote about this in my book. Um, my sister um, uh, uh, is, is a doctor. And when she was going through medical school and, and applying for medical schools, one of the schools she wanted to get into is called McMaster University uh, out of Hamilton, Ontario. And they really value building great family docs. So what does it mean to be a very good family doctor or general practitioner? Well, you need to be able to know a vast amount, a lot of information, think on your feet, have good bedside manner, communicate complex things in simple ways. And so one of the things they did uh, during her interview process is there was a panel of, of interviewers and they asked her, teach us something that you're passionate about, which has nothing to do with medicine. And she went, huh, she loves dance. She asked them to stand up. And she taught them the very first ballet moves that she learned, first position, second position. They weren't measuring her on her ability to make them better dancers. That was a foolish task. They were measuring her and assessing her on her ability to think on her feet, to have good bedside manner, to communicate a complex thing in a simple way. Uh, and she passed with flying colors in it and is a great doctor. And it's not just my bias. Check out ratemd.com. Um, so th that's a great way, especially when you're building a team, 
It's not just skills because you can hire a highly skilled prick that doesn't fit well or add well to the team. Um, throwing some curveballs in an interview process to see someone's true colors. Yeah. Or like in- I've, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people like, uh, you know, trying to figure out how someone will act is put them in a car during rush hour and do the interview then. Love that. Yep. <laughs> or take or take them out for a meal and and tip the waiter 20 bucks to mess up their order on purpose just to see how mm. they respond. Wow. Ever since watching Road Trip, I, I I just I don't ever say anything. I, if they if they mess up my food, I'll scrape yeah. off whatever needs to be scraped off. You know, I'm not going to send my French toast back because they put uh, powdered sugar <laughs> on. <laughs> so one of the things, so I I did a, a a workshop yesterday with a with a client, and um, the start time for the workshop was advertised as ten fifteen. And the end time was advertised as 2.45 p.m. with some breaks and lunch and whatever. I show up in the morning and they go, hey, change of plans. Um, the senior leaders of our area have become available. They're going to hop in and share a few words to to open up the uh, open up the day, um, which means your start time will probably be maybe an hour later. But your end time is the same now. I need like, I can't say no, sorry. Um, you know, this is what the contract says. And I'm going to go for four hours and you have to tell your senior leaders to go later. Like, no, like I roll with it. That's part of me. That's part of my brand. That's part of my success. So when I have been in a position to train, interview and hire uh, speakers and facilitators, I will purposefully change stuff up on them. I'll purposely change a meeting room. I'll purposely run late on purpose and have someone sitting in a in a in a lobby area with them to see if they're fuming or to see if they're like, eh, happens because I need to know that when I send someone out, when inevitably the client gives them a last minute change, that they roll with it. I I need that adaptability and that patience. So I'll actually create it and see how they respond. Now that sounds like the green room at Maury Povich. That sounds like some real, uh, some real crazy. Maury, Maury. <laughs> exactly. So, so you write speak. Uh, so you write speak up culture. It's, mm-hmm. it's your first book. You you really can clearly articulate in just talking with you for the for the last little bit that you know what you're talking about. Thanks. But why a book? You know, a lot of people. Well, I mean, that's why you, you paid me to say that, so that's fine. But. Um, <laughs> Why a book? A lot of people want to write a book, but only 3% of people allegedly write a book. Is that something that you've always wanted to do? Like what was, what was the reasoning behind actually putting pen to paper? Yeah. Thanks for the question. I mean, so I, I had worked with another, I mean, so first and foremost, I'm in the business of idea and idea adoption into behavior change. That's the business that I'm in. Now there are many ways to do that. You can do that through coaching and online tools and communities, um, the you know, and through books. Um, uh, I did it for a couple reasons. So one, um, I had been working with Simon Sinek and on his team. And if anyone doesn't know Simon, he's a well-known author and speaker. Has written "Start with Why" and "Leaders Eat Last" and "The Infinite Game." And so, um, working on Simon's team and being one of his speakers, I would often get the question when are you going to write a book of your own? And my response to that question was always, if and when I ever come across something worth writing about. Um, 
I knew I wanted to write a book at some point or do something to share my grandfather's story. My grandfather has an amazing life story. That will be my next book that I'm starting to work on now called The Book of Ben, because his name was Ben or Benjamin. Um, I'm happy to share more about that. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I never was sold to writing a book because um, I, <laughs> I have seen many books that are written by keynote speakers because they need something to sell in the back of the room. That to me is a definition of a shitty book and I never wanted to write one of those. And so I had some experiences that caused me to go, huh, I think I have something. Now there's also a difference between a book and an article. <laughs> so what I started to do is as soon as I had an idea, I'm extroverted. So I often will speak to think. I just started giving talks on it and talking about it and hopping on podcasts and you know, when clients would ask me to give a keynote or a talk, I'd say, hey, can I talk about this new thing that I'm exploring just so I could learn more about it and figure it out. And then I started writing notes and I had about 30 pages worth of notes in somewhat of a coherent way. And then I shared it with my publisher and my developmental editor. And then with their help, we made it into a book outline, which was a very gratifying experience to go from, huh, there's more than, a, than an article here. I actually think there's an arc. Uh, and enough substance in meat here for for a book. So, um, but it's but it's a brilliant question, and I received some coaching uh, from a friend, Michael Bungay Stanier, on does it need to be a book? Um, and I think it can be a book plus. It can be a book. It can be a community. It can be a keynote. It can be a workshop. It can be an online course. Um, it's really around how do you get information across that inspires and creates a shift in perspective and a shift in behavior change. It's interesting how you came to that conclusion. I, when I wrote my book, it was very similar where I had been doing a lot of those same things. And then it was like, oh, well maybe this can become a book. I wasn't doing any of those things to write a book. It just, I've been giving the same webinar, you know, multiple times a week, the same talk, the same, saying the same thing over and over again. It's like, oh, well, maybe it can get there. So that's cool, Tim. Yeah. And it's it's also like the, the if if you're asked the same question at least twice, there's a pattern. And then right. can you create a tool? So like now that I've published a book, the number of people who will reach out to me and say, hey, what were your biggest learnings, tips, insights, failures, et cetera? I got tired of answering that question. So I created a couple of yeah. resources. I have a couple of LinkedIn posts on it that I'll share with folks to say, hey, take a look at this. Or I even, you know, someone sent me those questions and I said, hey, would you be willing to hop on and I'll answer those questions for you, but can we record it? So that the next time someone asks me those questions, I can just send that conversation to them because that's scale, right? Mm -hmm. I'm curious what the uh, what the backstory is and how the connection with Simon happened. Yeah, so um, I graduated biz school in 2009. My first day at my first job, a thousand people were let go post merger, and so uh, I showed up. Uh, as many more people were leaving boxes in hand. And I saw firsthand and became fascinated even more so with organizational culture and organizational behavior and then how change can impact people's productivity as well as health and well-being, um, change and leadership and transparency or lack thereof. I fell out of love with my career less than a year into the job. Um, I felt very unmotivated. And the first person I made wrong was me. Like, what, what's wrong with me? Why am I not motivated? As opposed to examining the situation and exploring why might it not be for me, right? 
Um, and so a mentor introduced me to Simon Sinek's work. I watched his talk. I went, oh, that's really good. Um, I went to hear Malcolm Gladwell speak at a conference in Toronto, which would have been in the fall of 2010. And I was already a fan of Simon's work and drawing golden circles on naps, uh, napkins and sharing uh, Start With Why with anyone who, who would listen. Um, and Simon spoke just before Malcolm Gladwell. I met him in the hall, had a chance to ask him a question during his, his talk around authenticity. Um, and just through some uh, net networking guile and elbow grease, <laughs> mm. developed, developed a relationship with him, um, wrote a blog about his talk, sent it to him. Um, he responded, I think it was on LinkedIn. I later went to go manage his LinkedIn and responded to all of his fan mail. So that was quite funny. Um, and it was just, you know, I, I, I reached out to Simon as he and I were sort of on touch over email. And I, um, said, I'm really inspired by your work and I'm going to keep contributing to it with your help or with, without, I just hope it's with your help. Um, and developed a relationship with him and his then CEO person by the name of Kim. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be invited to join the team in 2011, 2012. Um, it was the fourth person to join their team and spent an amazing 10 years, um, uh, working with them and helping to build their program and platforms. Very it's cool. amazing what happens when you just say, Hey, <laughs> there you go. Just say, Hey, totally. Um, I'm curious you, in, in your, in, I'm looking over the notes and you say as a leader, your whisper is a shout and your tiptoes are stomps. Yeah. I would love for you to expand upon that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have an equation for, for a culture. Sorry for dropping my pen there. Um, my equation for culture is culture equals values multiplied by behavior. And all of that is raised to the power of influence. So let's unpack that. Um, the definition of culture is in my point of view, how uh, work gets done and how we treat each other, both while doing the work and outside of work. Um, culture is very much in the how. So the strength of a culture is the degree to which our values are clear, defined in behavior, and then behaved. That's why I'm a real fan of articulating values as verbs or action phrases, as opposed to nouns or adjectives. Very hard to do respect or excellence or integrity. It's a lot easier to do excellence if it were a verb, like do more of your best work. Now we're talking. There's a bunch of behaviors under there. So the strength of a culture is values multiplied by behavior. If you have great values that folks understand, awesome, high number there. But if you don't live them, you just have nice wallpaper or a good screensaver or a good slide deck. Um, uh, the strength of a culture is the degree to which the behaviors, the values are behaved. Now, not all of us are created equal in a, in a culture. We're still a hierarchical species. So as a leader, a whisper is a shout and your tiptoes are stomps. The more influence you have, whether by authority rank title or your behavior, um, my favorite leadership quote right now from Rich Devinney, my, my friend Rich Devinney, is leaders aren't born, leaders aren't even made, leaders are chosen based upon the way that they behave. Leadership is in our behavior. And when you behave as a leader, you have followers, you have the people. We all know and have experienced folks who have the title, but they do not lead. And we might do as they say out of fear or perceived necessity. But then there are folks who I call lowercase l leaders who don't have the title, but they behave as a leader. Um, and so 
if you have influence in a in, in a culture, your behavior and your values simply are amplified and matter more. Um, it means something more if you're the CEO and you don't behave in line with the values than it does someone that we hired three weeks ago in a more junior role, unless they were handpicked by a senior leader. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super profound. Lot to lot to unpack there. Just in terms, that quote is really really special. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Wow. Cool. My my other favorite quote from the book is when the human in me sees the human in you, we make progress. That that's my favorite. Mm. Need a lot more of that. That's a, yeah, another bumper, another bumper sticker moment there. <laughs> yeah. Put that on a t-shirt and sell it. Yeah. I mean, I might. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Please send your address. I'll, I'll I'll make note for my lawyers. Not <laughs> there you go. I don't need any more of this. Uh, the for for fun, like what do you do for fun? Uh, sports, baseball, skiing. Uh, I love cars. I'm a big Toronto sports fan, so mostly mostly Blue Jays, then Maple Leafs, Raptors if they're good. Um, yeah, gonna go skiing not this weekend, but the weekend after. Uh, have you ever stayed at the hotel at the Sky Dome? I have not. I have not. And they're renovating there. that now. They're renovating. It's not, yeah, it's not, kudos yeah, to calling it the, the the Sky Dome. It's now called the Rogers Center, but it well, originally. I, I knew that, but I mean, I remember when the Blue Jays played at Exhibition Stadium, and I remember when the Sky Dome first opened. I can't believe that they're that it's old enough now for renovations. That's that's scary. Well, it was it was revolutionary in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. One of the greatest they were the first retractable roof, right? Yeah, yeah. Two two of the greatest WrestleManias ever were at the Sky Dome. Cool. Um, as a wrestling fan, obviously, I know that Shad's like, uh, you know, us Canadians, we don't really like wrestling. We, no, we don't. That's, Canadians that's do, just not this Canadian. Nope, <laughs> nope. I'm over three asking that question now, so I, I, I knew that's where we were going. <laughs> nice. What do you all do for fun? I want to have more fun besides cold plunges. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I never I'm, said that was fun. I, I get a little nervous every time Zach brings that up on the show because uh, I have a, a feeling someday that like a, a cold plunge is going to show up at my doorstep and then it's going to be expected that, uh, that I start doing that. Let's do it together. Right. Well, yeah, we used to, I, I, have, I have thought about it. I have thought about doing that, but he hates the uh he i mean he's basically said this is not for me so i'm not gonna like push it well yeah i mean we would polar plunge well not me i i never partook but uh the the og the polar plunge they would take a backhoe they would break open the ice in lake ontario and then you do a the annual polar plunge i mean that's Ooh. yeah that, that's for real yeah that the uh what if what do i fun tim runs I, yeah, I run a lot. Um, mu I, I, live music is something that is uh, I really mm. like to immerse myself in. Nice. And I'm fascinated by the whole leadership aspect of that as well, just in terms of like how you grow an audience. I mean, you when you're performing in front of uh, five or 10 people, you need to perform like you are, have a packed house because if you don't give it 100%, then those five people may not come back next time. And yeah, uh, let alone tell their friends. Exactly. Yeah. What, and, uh, what's some of your favorite Jake? uh artists oh uh, gosh i i expand 
I mean, growing up, CFNY was my my go to radio station. So uh, the alternative stuff, which is crazy to see that that is now like all turning 30, 40 years old now. But um, I'm really I'm, I'm proud of the uh, of the fact that we taught our kids to listen to all genres of music. So I mean, if you would look at like the artists that I saw last year, it was anything from Kenny Chesney to um, Post Malone to Fifty Cent to uh, I, I you know, Fifty Cent to, to the Foo Fighters. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it, it's just, it's all great. Nice, love that. Jay Billis has a really good quote about that. I don't know if you've you've heard it shed, but it's basically like, don't worry about how many people are in front of you. Just give them the greatest A game because they're they're there. Don't worry about the ten thousand people that you want later. It's really about the people that are there right then and there. And it's, I think you wrote an entire book about that kind of concept, which is, is, is pretty cool. Um, well, you, I watch wrestling. You that's my advice. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to 10,000 unless you treat the five or 10 in front of you, no. you know, as if they're part of, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important. Yeah. The whole grind aspect's fascinating. I mean, even how, uh, like when you look at, nashville and how nashville works and how they put all those artists starting as open mic nights and then you know you might get the the sunday afternoon uh club but then and then you you gradually work your way and you have to hit those paces and we, we talk a lot on the show about how you have to take the stairs and you can't take the elevator to the top you have to put in your reps and and, and over time you'll you'll prove your worth and you'll get there but yeah every over Every overnight success is 10 years in the making. Yes. Well, you know the story of like Little Nas X and how he basically became viral because he remixed the um the Old Town oh, Road. Old Town song. Road. Yeah. And and that became one of the songs that they played on the back of, of TikTok. I feel like I'm too old for that, so I'm not on it. But I believe <laughs> that's how he there was a really cool like Wall Street Journal article, video article about how okay. that came to fruition and just to see how like putting yourself out there and it, it becomes basically a, a, a way of life for people or a, a way of people following this dance move is, is pretty cool. I mean, you never know if it's going to happen. Obviously it, it, you know, he got lucky, you know, but yeah. he is talented, you know, you got to get lucky. There is luck in, in this whole thing. Timing is incredibly important. And I don't think totally. people talk enough about you got to put yourself in the position to 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 be lucky to have that timing be right because if you don't you know it'll it'll definitely never happen well two two things one i, I watch my tiktoks like an adult on instagram oh. um <laughs> and uh and second there you go. i once i once met someone who when they described what they did for work they said i make viral videos to which i thought no 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 you don't make viral videos you make videos and you hope they go viral you That's can't exactly control right. that you cannot control that. And just because it goes viral doesn't mean it's worthwhile or true anyway. That so is... I'm assuming you did not, you didn't meet Mr. Beast in that case because clearly he could have made that comment and it would have been correct. I, no, I don't know what you're referring to. Miss, Mr. Beast? I'm not familiar with one Mr. Beast. Oh, wow. Am I... There's a there. See? Yeah. It's the, oh. It's the biggest. It's the B left. <laughs> we, um... Oh no, he's yeah. It's because he's got several hundred million. Oh. Uh, it was Mr. Beast that, that got me. Mr. Beast yeah. is the largest YouTuber in the world. Yeah, 
and he makes yeah. like weekly videos. Looks familiar. It's good for him. You know. Good for him. I'm sure his mother <laughs> but, is proud. Yeah, but yeah, but you can. Uh, he now I, it's safe to say he goes viral now because he's got however many hundred million subscribers on YouTube. But to, sure. to get to that point. I don't know. It's interesting stuff. You got to, but you got to put the reps in nothing. It, it's, it's just what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, my, my, my daughter has a shirt that says, wake me when I'm famous. I mean, it's just so interesting. This influencer culture of like, what do you do for work? I influence. It's like, really? <laughs> like, what have we come to? But it's, it's so interesting. Um, a friend of mine, Sean Canungo, who study, he wrote a book called, called the bold ones. And he, what's so interesting about celebrity now is gone are the days where there are, or it's becoming harder and harder for there to be, quote, household names because of the algorithm and the fragmentation and niches. So, like, everyone knows Tom Hanks, Brad Pitt, you know, Taylor Swift. But, like, name me a household name that every single person knows, everyone um, that's happened in the last five years. The Rock. <laughs> the Rock, way more than five years ago. Oh, in the last five years. Oh, like, yeah. And has created, has been incepted. Like, you know, now I go and I look, I turn on Saturday Night Live and I look at the musical guest and the host and I'm like, who? And like, it's not yeah. just my age showing. It's, I think, the nature of fragmentation and niches is... We all have our own celebrities in our own feeds, but not everyone knows each other's celebrities. A thought. Mm, that, that's a very thought. that that's deep. There's so much you know, content that way. There's so there, much yeah. content, right? There is a yes, that, that so much content. Too much, and we're choosing we're choosing our content off of a little thumbnail. Think about that. That is we're making is a decision based, off of this little thing. Yeah. That's based on an algorithm. Oh, and Chet, anything here. we haven't talked, yeah. Any, anything we've talked, to, anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Uh, no, no. I mean, this has been fun. It's, it's same to you guys. Anything we haven't touched that you you'd want to? Anything that I put in the form <laughs> that we didn't talk about? No, I. I... I am looking forward to going back to re-listen and re-watch this episode. Uh, there, there's some some great great nuggets that uh, I wasn't quick enough to write down. So I, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom. Uh, My total pleasure. Hope it helps you both and and your audience. Sure, it will. Appreciate your time. And uh, until next time, thanks for watching. Thanks, Chad. Live.